0: 106.9, talking to Terry Brennan Jr. about his father's book called uh, Though the Odds Be Great and Small, about Notre Dame's 1957 comeback season. Terry Brennan uh, Sr. was the coach of Notre Dame, and he's still alive, he's still there, but from 1954 to 1958 and had some of the most amazing wins in the history of Notre Dame, which is a school that's had uh, a lot of great wins. So, Terry, thanks a lot for coming on and talking about your father's book.
1: Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So the one thing about Notre Dame is you sort of grew up, of course, growing up being the son of the coach. Uh, you saw everything about Notre Dame. But the idea of the mystique was created in the, in the 1918 to 1930. We're really going back far. But with the Newt Rockne, the fact that he won three national titles. I mean, we always think everybody grows up now saying Notre Dame's Notre Dame. But, you know, before 1918, Notre Dame wasn't Notre Dame. But now we're just it's, it's symbolic with uh, football a lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, my grandfather, my dad's father, played for Notre Dame in 1910. <laughs> oh. So it was it was before the heyday.
0: And then, um, frankly, Leahy, Leahy came. He was the coach from 41 to 43, uh, won the national mm-hmm. championship. And then your dad, the one thing with your dad, not only was he coach, but he was a star player on the team from 46 to 49, winning three national championships.
1: Yeah, actually, he, he started in 1945 as a 17 year old freshman with the war underway. And probably one of the only reasons, well not the only reason, but one, a big reason he was there, he's 17 and couldn't be drafted. <laughs> and, uh, they, Notre Dame took it on the head a couple of times that year, particularly from the service academies, which were at full strength. And they played, uh, they played teams like Great Lakes, which was a combination of college players and professional players. So it was, it was a crazy time to be playing college football that, and it was crazier the next year. Nineteen forty-six, uh, Notre Dame had two hundred guys go out for football, and my dad and Bill Fisher were the only two guys that kept their positions.
0: And you, know, you made a point in the book about Leahy. was—he took two years off from Notre Dame or a year off, and and was like going around and he was in the military, so he just was, mm-hmm. you know, was looking for talent. He was it gave him a way to find all these people to recruit to come, and that's why Notre Dame you know, won those three national titles. And he was 36 and two in three you know, in those three years.
1: Yeah, well, and, and the GI Bill helped, and the, and the NCAA allowing everyone to transfer whoever they wanted to. And, you know, I always say that, you know, if you're if you in a foxhole during World War II, you were still getting the Notre Dame game on uh, Armed Forces Radio. So the, a lot of these guys took it to heart and, and transferred.
0: Right, and then your dad was involved in what some people call the greatest game ever played, the 0-0 mm-hmm. tie with Army, and then the next year he returned the kick for a touchdown. So it was like, so he is... In lore of Notre Dame, just as a player, very famous.
1: Yes, yeah. I I had a bet with a friend of mine. We were at one of the games, and uh, he I said he said to me, if I asked somebody who ran the opening kickoff back against Army in 1947, will anybody know? And this was probably 1980. And I said, yeah, somebody's going to know. And sure enough, three guys knew. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then it was. So your dad goes, he plays at Notre Dame, and he's becoming a lawyer and all these other things. And, he, and, as he, and he's also then coaching in high school, and he wins. Mm-hmm. He's now one of the, at, at age 20, to whatever, 23, 24, he's one of the top high school coaches in the country, winning uh, three state titles at Mount Carmel in yeah. Illinois. So it's a, it was a, a crazy. He wasn't even thinking he was going to go into coaching, and then he suddenly becomes this great right. high school football coach.
1: Yeah, he was he was going to law school to join my grandfather's law firm in Milwaukee. And uh, this was a way to pay for law school at night. Uh, And then he ended up with his 1950 teams considered the best high school football team in Illinois. And back then, you didn't have a state championship, but you had a city championship between the Public League and the Catholic League. And that game would draw anywhere from 70 to 100,000 people in Soldier Field and he he won three consecutive titles which was unprecedented and that's when i think he began to uh, show up on the radar screen of a lot of different uh, people like the chicago cardinals the canadian league and marquette university interviewed him to be the head football coach they had a football team back then and how it went
0: well and then you mentioned how he goes to notre dame because they, they brought him in in terms of joyce and hershberg bring him in father joyce and father hershberg but you talk about the push they were pushing out because it was sort of like Notre Dame was having this idea that the Ivy League schools, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, so I saw what happened. You know, the Ivy mm-hmm. League schools used to be the top schools in the country. If you look at Harvard, Yale, Penn, they were the number one teams. And then University right. of Chicago, which just got rid of their football, and all—all all, you know they just eliminated football. But Notre Dame sort of mm-hmm. was like they, they were trying to de-emphasize football, but they didn't want to totally de-emphasize it, and they were like you know one foot in, one foot out type of situation. Right.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, Father Hesburgh's strategy was a good one. He he he's he was an academic, he's a scholar, a good administrator, and he said, you know, the future of this school is academics, not being in a football factory. And he was very successful in that strategy where I think he, he missed the boat and they it took him about ten years to figure it out, was you could they could coexist with one another. I mean, Northwestern was able to do it, Vanderbilt, Stanford, Rice, Duke and i think they they realized that they were they were missing out on really their heritage of football and perhaps doing it the right way when it was then being done the wrong way and uh yeah i think that unfortunately they put uh they, they certainly put my father at a disadvantage when there were no scholarships whatsoever uh, scholarship limits in the NCAA at the time and they unilaterally disarmed basically and and as you point out they adapted uh Ivy League sort of rules between the SAT and no transferring and no redshirting.
0: And then your dad though. So at 25 years old, 25, it's amazing to think he was named the head coach. They forced Leahy out, make your dad the head coach. Mm -hmm. And, and then one of the criticisms was they said, your dad only won with ladies players because his first two years was nine and one and eight and two. But really what mm-hmm. it was, was they didn't have any scholarships they were playing with, you know, and the, and the there was no limits. It wasn't, it wasn't like they were playing with 50 scholarships. And the other teams were playing with 75. They might've been playing with 50 and everyone else was playing with 200 because there was no limits in terms of mm-hmm. the Oklahoma's and everybody else, how they could use.
1: No, that's right. And what you were playing at that time, which was a crazy way to play football It was platoon systems where entire offenses and defenses would come in, not individuals. So if you've got if you've got three platoons like Michigan State did because they had you know 100 plus scholarships, eventually you're going to wear down the guy with fewer scholarship players, and that's that's what was starting to happen. Uh, he, He did some pretty good recruiting under those restrictions, though, and he didn't really he didn't mind the academic requirements that were being put in there as long as they were he had the scholarships and the bodies. And I think he began to show these people that he could actually win in '57 and '58 against just murderous schedules, even while short-handed.
0: Well, yeah, '56 he had Paul Hornung. It was just—I mean, amazing yep. to think now that a team that was two and eight, so it was one the bad year—and Paul Hornung actually won the Heisman Trophy uh, on a two mm-hmm. and eight football team.
1: Yeah, he was a phenomenal player. My uh, my dad, uh, you know, Paul passed away last year or earlier this year, and uh, he he was. One of the best. He had nothing but praise for Paul and never had a problem with him. Thought he was one of the greatest football players ever.
0: And then you talked about the 57 season, which had all those great wins. I mean, they came into the season, they started out 4 0, beating Purdue, Indiana, Army, and Pitt. And you should read the book because you really go back into the idea with the rivalries with these teams and brings them up. And then they lost the Navy in Michigan State, but then the game against Oklahoma, 48 games. It's amazing to think. We're down here in South Florida, so we remember Miami's 34 wins in 2000-2002. Mm-hmm. Oklahoma had a 48-game winning streak, two-time national championships. Bud Wilkerson is their coach, 18-point favorite, and you go in and shut out Oklahoma. Amazing.
1: Right. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, that was a tough, it mentioned in the book, that was a tough November. There were five Saturdays, and they played five consecutive Saturday games, and their first four were against number three, number four, Number five and number six. And the last game was against Southern California, which is never a, an easy game. And uh, with Oklahoma, though, I think they did a, he would tell you, if he, is that they did a terrific job of scouting what Oklahoma did. And, and everybody knew what they did. They were a terrific running school. Bud Wilkinson was a good friend of his. And he found a way to stop their their running game, which forced them into a throwing game and the pass was not their friend. They they were a running team almost. <laughs> it was like watching a track team with well, they, their yardage and their points. Uh, so putting them into into a position to have to throw the ball, as any coach will tell you, once you can get the guy to play your game or get him out of their game, you, you've got an advantage, and they were able to press that advantage, hold on, and win the game.
0: And then even in 58, there were 6-4, and four, and, I, and you mentioned mm-hmm. in the book, it's like and now he's 30 years old, he has four kids, and he's mm-hmm. well thought of, no scandal at all If there, and anything, is one of the most highly respected coaches in, in football uh, by everybody, right. and, and all the, you, you pointed out in all the writing, and had a good record, and suddenly they fire him. <laughs> Talk about that <laughs> a little bit.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it clearly caught my dad by surprise. It even caught the athletic director by surprise. Moose Krause, who was an All-American basketball and football player at Notre Dame, and coached under Leahy, he knew quite a bit about what it took to play sports at Notre Dame and to coach at Notre Dame. Uh, he wasn't even consulted. The uh, the Holy Cross priest in charge of athletics, uh, Father Edmund P. Joyce, had basically gone around the athletic director, sought out you know advice from people outside the school, and they concluded that they needed an NFL coach to come in and turn this thing around. And that NFL coach turned out to be Joe Koeric. Who ended up being the worst Notre Dame coach in the history of the program. So, uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, uh, the, uh, Father Hesburgh knew what he was. He was an academic, a scholar, and uh, did a wonderful job of raising the academic standards of Notre Dame uh, and, and never pretended to know anything about athletics. The unfortunate thing is, is Joyce actually thought he knew what he was doing, and as it turned out, it didn't appear that he did.
0: Yeah, and then it was like, but when I, I was shocked, I mean, this is the question I've been wanting to ask since I read the book was, He's your father's thirty years old. He has been known, mm-hmm. you know, highly. You know, everyone thinks he's great, innovative on offense, innovative on defense, everything great. And he never coaches a game again. That is crazy right. to think that he just retired at thirty years old. When you you mentioned the book, he was given offers from other colleges, pro teams, mm-hmm. everything, and he, and he just decides not to coach.
1: Yeah, I mean, he could have been the head coach at Colorado, the head coach at. Um maryland and vince lombardi who he would spend summers with wanted him to join his staff and ironically he would have been coaching paul Hornung again but i think he'd been in that job in that position enough to know that you once you get to that level you'll always get a job but you're going to be moving around a lot which is a, a terrible terrible uh flight for your family to have to suffer through moving from time to time sometimes unexpectedly and he has a lot of green and you know he's one of the few coaches if any that Left his job and went to work for Goldman Sachs, <laughs> so it, it worked out.
0: <laughs> he should have went and like bought a team that and coached himself after he had doing do like yeah. a like an Al Davis. But uh, yeah, I just, there it, but there wasn't even like you know it's one thing when if you're like sixty or seventy. He's thirty years old. Like even five years later, someone didn't like. I'm sure people who are looking for coaches were saying, "Hey, why don't we bring?" Mm-hmm. He, he must have got offers for a decade mm-hmm. at least. People asking him to come back and coach.
1: Yeah, and people, uh, and occasionally even in his you know fifties and sixties, people were thinking about him as an athletic director. Um, but he just you know he, he'd been doing what he'd been doing for so long after coaching. He really had no, and he believe me, he knew he knew the pressures involved as well. Uh, you know, and, and and coaching changed. It's kind of interesting. You know, being a coach in 19, in the fifties, you really had to like what you were doing. The big money wasn't there yet. You know, and, and one of the reasons that it says you know, the year that college football changed was. The 1958 NFL championship game between the Baltimore Colts and the New York Giants went into sudden death overtime, and people started to realize that the pro game was pretty attractive and pretty exciting to watch. Then you throw in the AFL in 1960, and by the time you get into the mid-60s, uh, people are, are not are no longer going to school on a football scholarship to get a job. They're getting going to school on a football scholarship to join the NFL and make a lot of money. And uh, the, so ch- things changed. The coaches started making more money. The NFL players started making more money. It was the decline. The beginning of the decline of the service academies, unfortunately, in Vietnam didn't help either. But it, it changed. It was it was a different ball game after that. And um, he still doesn't regret it. He, he's very happy having done what he did.
0: Yeah, and I mentioned in the book that he's gone back to games. I mean, he doesn't hold this grudge like a Bobby Knight towards Indiana. I mean, he definitely goes back to Notre Dame and is involved in things with with Notre Dame, even though he was fired when he was 30 years old with the record that he had.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. He's never been a backward guy. He's a forward guy. And And to get him to write this book, I mean, my late mother used to pester him to write about it because people don't really know the full story, and hopefully now they do. And he... He, when she passed away, there was a great deal of memorabilia that my wife uh, managed to computerize. And we found things like a handwritten autobiography, a postmortem of the 1956 season. So we started pestering him again to write the book, and we finally got him to do it. And uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's it's interesting. He had a hard time doing that for the reason that he is a backward guy. He's a forward guy. We had to pull a lot of stuff out of him. <laughs> he, he, uh, he doesn't like talking about himself he likes talking about other people and we had to force him to talk about himself so uh, fortunately we did that
0: well Terry I really appreciate you coming on I Run Sports and talking about your dad and, and his book uh, though the odds be great or small it's going to be available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and everything and in the bookstore so I really appreciate you coming on and, and, and talking about it and tell your dad I hope he's feeling well and I uh, hope he yeah. can uh, hear all the accolades he's going to get from this book
1: Great. Well, I I appreciate it, and I thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much.